Welcome to another inspirational message by Pastor Ron Hammonds, Senior Pastor at Golden Triangle Church on the Rock in Beaumont, Texas. For more information about Church on the Rock and Ron Hammonds Ministries, visit cotr.com. Okay. Hey, today we're going to, uh, well, let me, let me catch you up on a little bit of history in America, late 1800s, okay, before we get into the Bible, okay? And this has something to do with what I'm going to be saying. Have you ever heard about the feud, this infamous feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys? Everybody's heard about the feud. Bring me up a picture of this, of, of, of this group. Let's see. Looky there. Look at those. Woo, don't they look like people that would feud? Yeah. Well, let me tell you a little bit about this infamous feud between the Hatfields and McCoys. It began in the late 1800s in Pike County, Kentucky, and just over the line. In fact, there's a member of our church. He's 93 years old. Y'all know Mr. Perry Staten. He's not here this morning, but m m most of you know Mr. Perry, 93 years old, uh, uh, just a tremendous guy, and he is uh, uh, related to the Hatfields and the McCoys. He was raised in Pike County. Uh, and he is a charter member of the Baptist church there in that county. And he's also a member of our church. But uh, uh, at any rate, uh, uh, Mr. Perry's grandfather wrote a book that's been published uh, about the Hatfields and the McCoys and the feud. And it goes into, I've read the book, he loaned it to me. He has a copy that his grandfather gave him. And uh, it, it, it goes into all of the details, all of the court records, the statements, the witnesses' statements, and interviews that were done by, by, you know, by family and friends. Uh, Mr. Perry Staten, S-T-A-T-O-N. Do you know that it was his ancestor, a man named Bill Staten, that was the very first casualty of that feud. Yeah. And uh, very interesting to note. Uh, and uh, even though the descendants today, the, the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the Hatfields and McCoys, you know, they either don't know or else they won't agree as to even why they're feuding. There are so many things out there. They, but they nonetheless have concluded that we in a feud, okay, we is in a feud and we're going to kill one another, hurt one another, be mad at one another, sit on separate sides of the aisles, whatever else it, uh, it, it does. They have concluded, it's a foregone conclusion that if you are born as a Hatfield and born as a McCoy, that you just do not get along. Well, uh, there's several historians that have written about it. And one historian, let me share with you just one of the historians' uh, um, take, a portion of their take on it. Uh, this was written in 2015 by Stacy uh, Conrad. Uh, the real reason the Hatfields and the McCoys started feuding, okay? You can find this on Wikimedia if you want to you know, check it out yourself and read the whole thing. Uh, they said this, in the late 19th century, the Hatfields and McCoys were locked in a bloody decades-long feud. The event that launched the now infamous conflict which claimed the lives of 13 family members has taken a back seat to the fact of its impressive longevity. What caused the bad blood in the first place? A pig. <laughs> Isn't that normally what causes problems? <laughs> okay. A pig or a donkey, one or the other. Uh, in 1878, Randolph McCoy 
accused Floyd Hatfield of stealing one of his hogs. The matter went to trial with the star testimony coming from Bill Staten, an ancestor of, of Perry Staten, a member of our church. Bill Staten, who, uh, he was a McCoy and he had married a Hatfield. Staten sided with Hatfield and was later shot dead by Sam McCoy. And then unfolded this long feud. And here we are, generations later. Here we are, each one of us. I mean, when I mentioned a feud, your minds went to Hatfield and McCoy. I mean, uh, you know, it had been made popular by TV series, but we know that there are some people in our nation that doesn't, don't, they don't like one another, and they are going to fuss and fight. You see, uh, the, the, the grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren of the Hatfields and McCoys are still considered to be in a feud, even though most of them cannot even tell you why they they are feuding. I mean, they've read the history perhaps, or maybe not, but they've all got their differing opinions. But one thing is certain. They have concluded that life is a feud. They have decided and they, they, they have a foregone conclusion that feuding is the only option. If you are born as a Hatfield or a McCoy, then you are born into this feud. And uh, that's, um, that's what they've decided. Well, Conclusions can really make decisions in your life, even without your permission, even though you may not even know what's going on. Sometimes conclusions that we draw, especially when we draw wrong conclusions, sometimes they can affect us. So today we're going to talk about conclusions. Today we're talking about how they affect everything we think, we believe, we do, and even affect future generations to come. Our conclusions, our decisions, our foregone conclusions can at times take us down a wrong road of life. That was back in the 1800s. Let's look back a few more years earlier to some other people who drew a conclusion. Let's look back to 1100 years before Christ. 1100 years before Christ, this is just before King Saul and King David came on the scene, okay? They still uh, were in the period of judges. They were in the period of, of, of the time that the Ark of the Covenant of God was in a place called Shiloh. It had been there for 400 years. There was no king, and the people just did what was right in their own sight. Well, it happens that one day, this priest, who was rather old, he was in his 90s, this priest's name was Eli. We're going to be going in a moment to the book of 1 Samuel if you want to get ahead. This priest's name was Eli. And Eli and his two sons, one of them was named Hophni, the other one was named Phinehas. But we're going to call him Phinehas today because it's so much easier to say, okay? <laughs> Hophni and Phinehas. Now, these two boys were the sons of the high priest and they were set and poised to inherit the priesthood, but they were in disfavor with God. They were doing everything underhanded you could imagine, okay? They were just, I mean, it was bad. You can read about it. You can read about it in chapters three and chapters four of first Samuel. Now, one day, the children of Israel went out to war. 
And when they warred against the Philistines, they started losing the battle and it scared them because, you know, the Israelites are not supposed to lose a battle because, you know, they are the children of God. And the Philistines were supposed to be their enemies. And, and nonetheless, they started losing. And so they came back to Shiloh and sent messengers and said, we're losing the battle. And Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli the priest, said, well, we'll fix that. We'll just get the Ark of the Covenant. You know, remember that box that Moses had built? And the presence, the power, and the glory of God was contained in that box because the presence of God came down to inhabit that and to, to rule over the mercy seat that was on it in the tabernacle of Moses. Well, this was considered to be the, the representation of God. And so Hophni and Phinehas said, we'll just take the Ark of the Covenant out to the battlefield and we'll just show them what our God can do. And so Hophni and Phinehas got him a couple of guys to carry this and they went out to the battlefield. And when they showed up with the Ark of the Covenant, man, all of the Israelites got so excited, they started cheering and, and screaming and hollering and clapping. And they were, oh, they knew that the battle was going to turn around now because we got the box. It scared the Philistines. The Philistines got together in this halftime huddle. You can read about it. That's exactly what it sounds like. And they started saying, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Uh, you know, th this God that has come out now, never before have we faced a God like this. This is the God that destroyed people in the wilderness. This is the God that delivered them from Egypt. This is the God that destroyed the armies of Pharaoh. I mean, this box is mighty and powerful. What are we going to do? And so the Philistine leader gave them a pep talk and said, okay, we got to be on our best behavior. We got to go out here and do it right. We've got to fight like we've never fought before. And so the Philistines went out there and fought against the children of Israel and killed like 30 or 40,000 of the children of Israel and defeated the armies of Israel. They also killed Hophni and Phinehas. Well, the Philistines captured the ark and they took it back to their city. Now, when a messenger came from the battle and got back to Shiloh, where the Ark of the Covenant had been for 400 years, they told the old priest, Eli, they said, we've lost the battle and both of your sons are dead. And the Ark of the Covenant has been captured by the Philistines and they have it now. The Bible says Eli was a very large and a very old man and he was sitting on a seat and he fell over backwards and broke his neck and died. I know, sad story. It happened. Well, Phineas had a wife who was pregnant. And when she heard that her brother-in-law and her brother and her father-in-law were dead and the Ark of the Covenant was taken, she went into hard labor, the Bible says. And as she was bringing forth her son, she died. But not before she named her son. Her last words were, his name 
shall be Ichabod. For the glory of the Lord has departed from Shiloh. And indeed, the Ark of the Covenant never went back there. Ken and I have been there, you know, right to Shiloh. Uh, you know, it ain't there no more. It's nothing but rocks and desert and a forgotten place. And it was the place on the earth for 400 years. Ichabod. You know, y'all know, uh, sometimes young people are real idealistic. You ever met a young idealistic person? Especially when it comes to being preachers. Especially when it comes to being Pentecostal preachers, Okay. Young, idealistic, Pentecostal ministers who, who really want to, I mean, I mean, you know, back in the day, there was a time back in the day whenever, a, you know, a man, if, if, if you didn't get up and prophesy and have a word and, and church services weren't necessarily real structured and organized in every church service, they were kind of like a free for all. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, some of you may have experienced that, some of you may not have, but, uh, you know, uh, whenever I took Brenda to visit the church with me when she and I were dating, uh, some ladies came down and got her and drug her down to the altar and made her start praying. And, and they just scared the daylights out of her. And when we got back in the car to leave, there's only about, you know, 16, 17 people at that church. And I was, I was, I, I think I was 17 and Brenda was 18. Uh, 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 and, and, uh, you know, I took her there so she could see me play the guitar. I played guitar there at, at the church. It was my uncle's church. And, you know, I knew all three chords, a G, C, and D. And boy, I could play loud. I could play every song real loud. And, uh, you know, we had our own volume, our own little things, you know, we just turned it up and cranked it up and just played. And we played while most of the people ran around. I didn't know what they was running around about, but they was running around having a good time. I didn't care. I was getting to play the guitar. And that was church. Boy, we got back in the car. Brenda said, I'm going to tell you one thing. You, don't you ever take me to church again. You understand me? I'm never going to a place like that again. Young, idealistic ministers, Many times would, in their enthusiasm, just want to be a part. You remember that, Brother Wayne? They just want to be a part. They jump out there and this. Uh, well, I heard a story of this one minister that, that was in a camp meeting, and he, was, he just wanted his turn. You know, there was prophecy going on, and, you know, and uh, words of knowledge, and there were, you know, uh, tongues, interpretation of tongues. He was just wanting to be a part so bad, and in a minute, you know, uh, he, he, he thought, well, you know, you know, people here aren't, aren't doing like they should do. I'll just jump up, and sometimes a young idealistic idealistic uh, 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 people can be a little bit negative sometimes, a little critical, a little, you know, judgmental. I know that none of you have ever experienced anything like that. Uh, you know, <laughs> he found his time. There was just a short lull. He jumped up and he said, thus saith the Lord for all of you who are sinning, I have written Michelob across thy door. <laughs> Instead of Ichabod, he meant Ichabod. He said Michelob. <laughs> the Lord hath written Michelob across thy door. <laughs> I think, well, you know, if it gets bad enough, maybe it is time for a beer. I don't know. <laughs> the Lord must know I need a drink. No, <laughs> that's written Michelob. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Oh, man, funny things happen in God's family too. Okay, so at any rate, let me get back to the story. The, the Philistines got the Ark of the Covenant. The glory had departed from Shiloh. They had the Ark of the Covenant. And they're taking this Ark of the Covenant back to their city. When they get back to their city, 
They take the Ark of the Covenant because they have captured the God of the Israelites. They take the Ark of the Covenant and they put it into the temple of their God. Their God's name is Dagon. Okay? Well, they get up the next morning and they come out and Dagon has fallen down on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. His statue is laying down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Well, I don't know why they didn't think that strange, but they set him back up, you know, and they worshiped him that day and went on about their business. And they got up the next morning and they came out to the temple of Dagon to worship Dagon again. And this time he's fallen down, but his hands are cut off and his head is cut off and they are laying on the threshold of the door of his temple. Now, this would have been a really good time to say, whoa, we've been serving the wrong God all this time. We need to get with the program. We need to convert to Judaism. This box is pretty powerful. It's done destroyed our God. But you know what? That is not what they concluded. I'm going to submit to you that something was wrong with their interpreter. Let's read about it. 1 Samuel 5, verse 1. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the temple of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning. There was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it up in its place again. Some people just keep doing it again and again and again. Verse four. And when they rose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. So what can you conclude from this? Therefore, okay, this was their conclusion. When you see a therefore, you look up above it to see what the therefore is there for. Okay, what just happened, we conclude... Therefore, neither the priest of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. <laughs> These Philistines drew the most stupid conclusion to the events they had just witnessed. They concluded that the threshold is now sacred. Now we have to adore and now we have to give our adoration to the threshold because this is the place where, where Dagon evidently has given himself to the threshold. And you know, even, even for generations later, they were still leaping over the threshold and jumping over and wouldn't touch it. In fact, they would bow down and kiss it. In fact, do you know that that happened in Christianity as well, by the way, during the, 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 the time in the dark ages in the middle uh, medieval period when Whenever uh, Christianity as an institution became corrupt, uh, you know, it was, it was a practice that was revived to stop at the door of churches and kiss the threshold. As though the building were the object of worship, as though the threshold were now, or the box was an object of worship. Uh, in the case of these Philistines, instead of saying, whoa, 
Jehovah is God. They said, whoa, Dagon, my God. He done anointed the threshold. Now let's worship the threshold. How do you get that from that? And they just went on in their blind, uh, aren't too long, young, young children in here. I'll use the word stupid then. They went on in their blind stupidity, drawing stupid conclusions. That's what I like to call stinking thinking, okay? Uh, something was wrong with their interpreter, as I said earlier. You see, when we listen to the wrong voices, we're going to make the wrong choices. And not everything that sounds good or seems good or looks spiritual, not every spiritual application is a godly application. The apostle John wrote to us in his elderly state and said, do not believe every spirit that comes and tries to tell you something because unless they fully testify of Jesus Christ, then they are just an angel of darkness trying to look like an angel of light. And you may not know the difference unless you just throw them up against Jesus. Not every voice, not every decision, not every conclusion, not every confirmation is of God. Something was wrong with their interpreter. You see, everyone sees the same things in life, but conclusions are personal and individual. And our conclusions are subject to our personal interpretations of what just happened, what we just saw, what we experienced, what we heard. Two people can hear the same thing and walk away with different conclusions. For example, if you were to read in the book of Numbers, chapter 12, 13, and 14, you would find that 10 out of 12 spies tend to draw wrong conclusions. <laughs> Y'all remember the spies that Moses sent out to look at the promised land? They all saw the same thing, but they interpreted it differently. Ten of the spies interpreted as though the giants were too big and we can't do it. Ten out of twelve spies will tell you that you're smaller than your enemies and you can't do it. Ten out of twelve voices are going to tell you that what you're facing is going to end up uh, winning. And ten out of twelve spies will tell you that you cannot trust God, that you cannot put your hope in Him, that, that you're going to die. It seems rare when you find someone who can draw an accurate conclusion. Why? Because most of us enter into a situation with a prejudice already about the situation. Already having some thing that we believe or, or, or some case we want to prove or some idea we want to champion. You see, if you already have made up your mind and what you're doing is looking for confirmation, believe me, you will find it. It can be tough even for God to change your mind when you're holding on to wrong conclusions. Everybody sees the same thing, but not everyone concludes the same thing. Oh, this is good stuff. Isn't this good? This is going to help those three people you know need help. What most often leads people to draw wrong conclusions? Well, let, 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 let me list a few things. Stubbornness. Stubbornness will cause people to continue to draw wrong conclusions even when they're faced with right information. Pride, hurt, anger, history, experiences, spiritual blindness, hubris, arrogance, if you will, youthful idealism 
will cause you to draw wrong conclusions. The pressure or the desire to run with the crowd. Do y'all remember the story about the emperor's new clothes? <laughs> he didn't have any on, but nobody wanted to tell him because they imagined that they would be the odd person out. Nobody wants to be the odd person out. That's why all the children of Israel decided to go with the, with, with the majority vote when the 10 spies said, no, we can't. They said, well, we don't want to be, you know, be left out, so let's run with the crowd. The pressure to run with the crowd is real. When the Philistines came to Dagon, they already believed that Dagon was a god. And for them to go back on that would have been for them to have left the crowd. Our conclusions control our decision and ultimately it controls our actions. You know, there is a universal law. There's a universal law that says you find exactly what you're looking for. Oh, come on now. You could have left here with that one bit of information and, and done pretty well in your counseling session next week. I remember when Brenda bought this little lime green Volkswagen. She swears she had never seen one before. It was the first year these little beetles came out. You remember way back there? I was gone on some mission trip and, and uh, she called and said, hey, I bought a new car. I said, you did? Yeah, I, I don't want to be gone like a day and a half. And she, had, she went down to San Antonio. She left here. No, she called down to San Antonio and got somebody in San Antonio to sell her the car and drive it here. Yeah. Little green Volkswagen. Do you know when we started driving that little green Volkswagen around, we started seeing little green Volkswagens everywhere. Have you ever had that experience? You ever had the experience that you buy a new car and you think that, oh, I got this fine car and you start looking around and every car that you pass is one just like yours or the same color as yours or somebody else has got the same shirt on that you bought or the same, I mean, you didn't notice it before and it's not that all of them just now jumped out there. It's that they were always there but you weren't looking for them and now that you're looking for them, you see them everywhere. Mexican restaurants. They're everywhere. You find what you're looking for. If you're looking for the you know, reasons why nobody likes you, or if you're reasons, look, looking for reasons why everybody loves you, you are going to find what you're looking for. It is a law. We find what we're searching for, and we often search for validations to validate our conclusions. If we have concluded nobody likes us, we start seeing those signs everywhere. There's a story about two old men that are sitting on the front porch of a general store in, in a small West Virginia town. One of those small little hamlets, country towns, you know. These two old men are sitting on rocking chairs on the porch on, on that old general store and a car pulls up. It's a family of four, a mom and dad and two kids and, 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 and the, 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 they roll the window down and the question that they asked the old men, they said, hey, uh, uh, we're, we're, we're thinking about moving out of the city into the country and, 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 and we were looking at relocating and we just want to know what kind of people live in this town. One of the old men said, well, let me ask you a question. What kind of people live in the town that you came from? And they said, well, the people in the town that we came from, 
and we're wanting to move away, they are hard and harsh and they're, and they're mean and they're unfriendly and, 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 and we're just, we, we just want to get away from them. The other old man on the porch spoke up and said, that's exactly the kind of people you're going to find in this town too. So they rolled the windows up and moved on. A few hours later, the old man's still sitting out there. Another car pulls up. Another family of four rolled down the window, asked the same question. You know, uh, hey, listen, uh, we're wanting to relocate out of the city into the country, and we just want to know, uh, you know, what kind of people live in this town? The old man spoke up and said, well, let me ask you a question. What kind of people live in the town that you live in now? They said, oh, they're the most wonderful people. They're so kind. They're so considerate. They're giving and we uh, loving. We just hate to leave there. The other old man spoke up and said, yeah, that's exactly the kind of people you're going to find in this town too. <laughs> and that's the truth. We find what we're looking for. It's a law. And perhaps we even mostly find people who are just like us. Ooh, that was a zinger, wasn't it? Okay. How do people draw conclusions? What do we use to decide what we're going to believe about what we just saw? How do we interpret something? Well, the number one way that I believe that we interpret things is through filters. Each one of us have filters. Each one of us have a set of ideas and ideals. Each one of us have experiences, and we create filters through which things pass. Things pass through our hurts. Things pass through our aggravation, through our anger, through our experience, through our knowledge, through our beliefs. Filters. Number two are fears. Many times we interpret something different than someone else because we have a fear that they don't have. Two people can see the same thing. Twelve spies look at the same thing. And 10 spies were filled with fear. And so their conclusion passed through their fear and it came out on the other side as a conclusion that we can't do this, we're gonna all die. And the other two, uh, didn't, they didn't have the fears. And so what they saw did not pass through the same filter and it came out on the other side that we can do this. We're well able, we can do this, seeing the same thing but drawing different conclusions. Why? Filters, fears. What we already believe, our prejudices. And a third thing, filters, fears, and foregone conclusions. If you have already made up your mind about something or someone or what happened or, you know, if you've already made up your mind and you have drawn predetermined foregone conclusions, then it's going to be very difficult for anything new to get through there, especially if your conclusions are wrong conclusions. If you have drawn a conclusion that there is no God, if you have drawn a conclusion that, 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 that the church is just some man-organized uh, you know, uh, uh, organization that is just perpetuating some lie or some ministry or some priesthood, then everything you hear about the church, everything you hear about Jesus, everything you hear is going to have to pass through that filter. You won't be impressed with the missions that we are doing. You won't be impressed with the ministry that we show. It will pass through a filter of I've already decided that church is not for me. It's no good. It doesn't work. Those are a bunch of, of bigoted, prejudiced, small-minded, religious fanatics. You see, 
There's a whole group of people out here who will never, for generations to come, will never drive a Chevrolet. Why? Because we're Ford people. We've always been Ford people. My granddaddy drove Ford. My granddaddy said Fords aren't, you know, Fords are the ones. Chevrolets aren't any good. My daddy said it. And, I, and that's what I believe. That's a foregone conclusion. I'm not, uh, you won't find me in no Chevrolet. Or a Buick. Come on, get real. Some people have drawn foregone conclusions about foreigners. And every foreigner fits in that category. Some about policemen. Man, there are some people and generations of people that a policeman does not have a fair chance. He's not going to get a fair hearing. He is an enemy. He's on the take. He's a liar and a cheat and a bully. That's a foregone conclusion. And two people can see the same thing and draw different conclusions because it goes through the filters, it goes through the fears, and it goes through the foregone conclusions. Political parties. Blondes. <laughs> Let's level it out. Men with beards. <laughs> yeah. Here's a good one. Preachers. Televangelists. You see, it won't matter how wrong we are. Our foregone conclusions will, conclusions will find confirmations because we find what we look for. Men, women, people standing on street, street corners, holding up signs, homeless, hungry, Our foregone conclusions will find confirmations and our foregone conclusions will affect our decisions and sad to say we will pass these down to our children, our children's children, so that the Hatfields and McCoys don't even know why they're feuding, but they have concluded that we are in a feud. We don't like one another and we're not going to get along. Our conclusions can be passed down for generations to come Right up until someone decides to break out of those fears, out of those filters, and out of their predetermined decisions. What can we do to ensure that we actually have the best interpretation of anything we see? You see, what we want is God's interpretation. That's really what we want. Seriously, that's what we want. You know, God might be a Chevrolet God. I think, however, he's a Yugo because that's the only thing I've seen in the Bible, Yugo. Okay, how can I, how can I do my very best to keep my experiences and my hurt, my stubbornness, my pride, the history, my, my arrogance, how can I keep uh, uh, myself open so that I have a chance of drawing a right conclusion? Because I know Two people see the same thing and they walk away believing different things. I see it throughout the word and I know that, that I'm subject to the same thing. How do I know that I have my interpreter working and I'm not just falling into the trap of searching for confirmations 
to support my conclusion. Well, perhaps for everything we see and we hear, may, maybe there's nothing we can do about our yesterdays. Maybe there's nothing they, they could do about serving Dagon yesterday. Maybe there's nothing that, that, that we can do about things that are past. But right now, I want to encourage you to lay it all at the altar of God. Your hurts, your history, your experience, your stubbornness, your pride, your anger. Lay it all at the altar and apply to everything you see, everything you hear, and every person you observe. Apply a generous amount of mercy to everything you see. Apply a generous amount of forgiveness to everything you experience so that you can have a right conclusion. Not necessarily so you can get back into business, but so that you can stand here right with God and not drawing wrong conclusions and bringing families into feuds that will last for generations to come. Apply a generous amount of love to everything you see, everything you experience. A generous amount of thanksgiving. A generous amount of grace and hope and faith. A generous amount of compassion and kindness. A generous amount of patience to everything that you see. Like putting Jam on toast. Apply a generous amount of God's love, compassion, and kindness, and mercy, and forgiveness, and goodness on everything that happens to you. To everything you hear and see. It will help to change your filter. Change your filter. Change your filter. It will help you to conquer your fears and just stop concluding that your fear wins. Change your filter. Conquer your fears. And number three, let the word of God establish your foregone conclusions. If God said love, even your enemies, then I pray that we would have concluded that it is best that we love them. As I said, like jelly on a piece of toast, every experience should always be tasted through the sweetness of God's word, through the sweetness of God's will, and through the sweetness of what God is trying to do on planet earth. We should taste everything through God's sweetness. It doesn't make us less powerful or less independent. It makes us more of everything we should be. Because kindness and love and joy and peace and patience and goodness, tenderness, compassion, these things are the measure of God in you, not the measure of God in anyone that you're loving or forgiving, but it's the measure of God in you. Tell me, what have you concluded about Jesus, about the church, about the Bible, about your responsibility to witness for others? This morning, and I want to encourage you 
to make sure Jesus is not only your Savior, but that he's also your Lord. That you've submitted your life and your thoughts and your conclusions to him and that you aren't just going around drawing false conclusions and searching for confirmations to support your foregone decisions. You'll find them. Sad to say, you'll find them. But that won't make you right. It won't make you happy. And it won't make you helpful. Let's ask God to give us more of his Holy Spirit so the Holy Spirit can become our interpreter, our teacher, our guide. You see, this is the daily will of God for you. Let the Holy Spirit be your interpreter. And when he interprets, it will always end up redemptive in nature.